Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's the night of Saturday the 7th of August 1909 and there's mystery in the air in Australia. That's because the passenger steamship Waratah has vanished. Having sailed from Melbourne to Adelaide, bound for London via Durban and Cape Town, this ocean liner has been missing for more than a week off the coast of South Africa. Grave fears are held for the 211 passengers and crew, many of them Australians. The disappearance of Waratah is the biggest story in papers all over the country. So there's a good chance that Reverend Benjamin Cousins has been reading the news and doing much praying about this today. For these past few years, he's been the chaplain to the Seamen's Mission in Port Melbourne. So members of Waratah's crew may have been to his regular non-denominational services. If Reverend Cousins is worrying about the missing ship tonight, at least his surroundings offer calm and peace. Benjamin, his wife Grace and their young daughters are spending the weekend at Kangaroo Ground. 16 miles northeast of Melbourne, this is a place of bush and farmland set on high hills and ridges. Benjamin and Grace have a house and land here. They're respected members of the community and active in civic organisations. Kangaroo Ground is really dark at 10 o'clock this midwinter night. The crescent moon isn't due to rise for another hour and a half. By day, the Cousins Place has a fine view of the Dandenong Ranges. But at the moment, there's not much to see. Until... All of a sudden, there is. Gazing to the southeast, the couple sees two lights floating high in the black sky over the Dandenongs. The mysterious lights seem to be spinning as they move through the air. And the way they move, it's like they're under power, under control. Reverend Cousins will say, quote, These lights whirled like the propellers of ships, slowed down, dipped and rose again as if they were beating up in a zigzag course against the wind. 
He and Grace think the lights are about six miles apart and about half a mile in the air over the mountains. The lights are beautiful. Quote, They change from white to red and then to blue, as if they were revolving beacons with three coloured slides. Benjamin and Grace are sensible, sober people, and they wonder if this is some sort of optical illusion. So they call their neighbours, and these people see it just like they do. Together, they watch the spectacle until midnight. By then, the leading light is a long way off, the second one following it into the distance. Reverend Cousins gets a couple of hours sleep. When he awakes, the first light's gone, and the second is very far away now but there are also five more lights moving near the horizon. In Melbourne on Monday morning, Reverend Benjamin Cousins goes to the office of the Argus newspaper to tell his story. They have no reason to believe he's lying or drunk or crazy. Quite the opposite. He's respectable, temperate, a lecturer and a writer whose life is given over to family, religion and community service. He tells the Argus what he saw and Reverend Cousins concludes, quote, They seemed to be coming from the lakes along the coast. The second followed the track of the first. The whole impression of their movement was that of machinery. Though the missing, never-to-be-found Waratah will still be bigger news in the Argus in a few hours' time, this sighting of the mysterious aerial phenomena gets a good run under the headline, Lights in the Air. The story is picked up all over the country, and Australia's first UFO flap has begun. I'm Michael Adams, and this is Forgotten Australia. In this episode, we're first going to hear what was reported about mystery airships, which were also dubbed scare ships, in Australia in 1909. Back then, though early newsreels were being made, movie cameras didn't catch these lights in the night sky, and radio was more than a decade in the future. Given that relatively few people actually saw the scare ships for themselves, the Australian public learned of the phenomena from the same newspaper articles we'll be using for reference. Then, once we've heard about the various sightings, we're going to learn a little bit more about what else was happening in 1909 in this country. Hopefully, it'll help you decide whether you're a Mulder or a Scully on this one. While we're focusing on the Australian mystery airship experience, it's worth noting that this was a global phenomenon in 1909. And our story starts in Great Britain. Towards the end of March 1909, strange things were not so much afoot as a float over England. A police constable out at night in Peterborough said he saw an airship hovering over the city. This thing had a powerful light and he heard the whirring of a propeller. Six weeks later, a man at Clacton-on-Sea saw a cylindrical balloon over the town. The next day, he found a curious object on the cliffs. Made of thick rubber, it was about five feet long and weighed some 35 pounds. The object bore the maker's mark, Muller Fabrik Bremen, and was believed to be the anchor from a German Zeppelin. After that came a deluge of sightings over Great Britain, and these were reported in the Australian newspapers. Under the headline, Airships or Scareships, Melbourne Herald's regular letter from London on the 23rd of June described a quote, Plague of airships, they have been as thick, over England and Wales especially, as locusts are in the worst stage of an Egyptian visitation. 
People were seeing machines soaring through the night over many parts of eastern England. They were equipped with searchlights and seemingly capable of flying into strong winds and performing complex manoeuvres at high speeds. These craft were in the habit of, quote, swooping down suddenly, sweeping the surrounding landscape with powerful lights and whirring away into the distance again, to the astonishment of all who beheld it. And it really was all who beheld it because these reports weren't being made by lushes and lunatics. Police, soldiers and even landed gentry were seeing these scare ships. More reports rolled in from Surrey and Kent, the Isle of Wight and right up to Belfast. The list of sightings was extensive. Witnesses, locations and dates were printed in the British and Australian press. A travelling showman had been on a mountain road outside Cardiff in Wales about 11 o'clock one night when he'd rounded a corner and run into two men standing near a long tube-shaped craft on the roadside. When these fellows spotted him, they, quote, jabbered furiously to each other in a strange lingo. Their machine lifted off the ground and the aeronauts jumped into a carriage suspended from their floating craft. Then the scareship rose into the night sky in a sort of zigzag fashion. After clearing telegraph wires, a pair of electric spotlights shone out from the airship before it soared off and disappeared. Two hours later, a railway signalman at a Cardiff wharf was startled by a, quote, weird object flying in the air. He told the papers. In appearance, it represented a boat of cigar shape making a whizzing noise. It was lit up by two lights, which could be plainly seen. It was travelling at a great rate and was elevated at a distance of half a mile, making from the eastward. Many other workers at the Cardiff Wharf that night corroborated his story. A common theory was that the German government had abandoned building its fearsome dreadnought warships and instead was devoting its resources to creating a fleet of Zeppelin airships that could carry bombs to drop on London. These strange craft were clearly a prelude to some sort of attack or invasion. Perth Sunday Times printed notes from London that said there'd been widespread panic, and this had only added to the already feverish state of what it called Kaiseritis in England. An Australian woman writing home to Adelaide's Observer newspaper said, quote, It gave one nerves to read some of the accounts of airships full of Germans seen floating over London while we were all asleep. Every time a German looked at me in the street, I felt he was summing up the probability of my one day becoming his kitchen maid or nurse girl, and I firmly resolved, if the former, then surely I would put poison in his sauerkraut. People in Germany were reported to be laughing themselves silly at all these Englishmen and their stiff upper lips being all a-tremble for fear of floating phantoms. Then... The mystery of the scare ships was solved when the wreckage of a crashed craft was found on a hillside in Wales. As readers of Sydney's The Star newspaper learned, it was, quote, practically a large toy that had been, quote, furnished with lights and had been used for advertising purposes. World-famous aeronaut Percival Spencer, a third-generation balloonist, came forward to confirm that, yes, he'd recently supplied several biggish blimps to companies that intended to use them for advertising. So, case closed. Yet a lot of people weren't satisfied. They believed the truth was out there. 
Toys like Mr Spencer's didn't account for witnesses saying they'd seen airships carrying men and powerful engines and heavy searchlights. Further, how did using airships for advertising at night make any sort of sense? No witness had come forward to say that the lights were trying to sell them on a new brand of tea or chocolate. And no company had come forward to take credit and cash in on the publicity. But the question remained, why were these airships only seen at night? Sydney's Sunday Times suggested it was a British military craft undergoing secret trials. Then, in early July, the mystery was solved again. An inventor named Dr Boyd confessed to a London newspaper that he and two companions had used a dirigible to secretly cross the Irish Channel one night back in May. Dr Boyd said he'd spent £20,000 over the past eight years developing his airship, which was 120 feet long and had engines capable of 300 horsepower to turn its four propellers. His craft could carry three men and 600 gallons of petrol, which was enough for it to fly an astounding 1,400 miles. On the nights he'd been spotted over Cardiff, Northampton and other places, Dr Boyd said, he and his companions had ascended to 3,500 feet and flown 90 miles before landing near Belfast. Then, the next night, they'd crossed the Irish Channel going the other way. Dr Boyd told the newspaper he was working with interested parties on a £250,000 plan to develop his machines commercially and militarily. So, case closed again. In the wake of this revelation, on the 11th of July, Sydney Sunday Times ran a front-page illustrated feature article. The picture was of a constable and a civilian caught in the powerful lights shining from the undercarriage of a craft hovering over an English city. The headline read, That Mysterious Airship. But the subhead made it clear the mystery had been solved. Quote, England's great triumph, Zeppelin outdone at night travelling. The Sunday Times patted itself on the back for its previous prediction about secret trials being behind the sightings of mystery airships. Recent German Zeppelin demonstrations had caused worry that England was losing the war for the air before there was even a war for the air. Now Great Britain would be greater than ever, the Sunday Times said, thanks to, quote, the genius of one individual, the previously unknown Dr Boyd. His invention had changed the game. Royal Britannia would rule not just the waves, but also the skies. Of course, the ink was barely dry on this Sunday Times article when Dr Boyd revealed in England that he'd made up the entire story and fed it to a credulous newspaper reporter. His hoax had been amplified around the world, which was particularly funny given the told-you-so air of self-congratulation from the Sunday Times in Sydney. So, what was the real explanation for the airships over Great Britain? Soon Australians and New Zealanders were no longer asking that question. Instead, they were asking this one. Hey, what's that up there in the sky? On Saturday the 31st of July 1909, the Sydney Morning Herald ran a report from Wellington that said mysterious lights were being reported everywhere above New Zealand's South Island. One witness said the airship was boat-shaped and flat on top and it had been speeding along at 30 miles per hour but others said the lights came from the centre of a floating black object. At Kelso, an Otago settlement that's since become a ghost town, schoolchildren said they'd seen a man sitting in a boat-shaped craft below a floating pontoon. 
The Newcastle Morning Herald reported they said it was, quote, flying along very easily and had no trouble in turning. A settler told the North Otago Times he'd seen the airship and his description was identical to that given by the kids. Other adult witnesses said they saw the same thing. The airship returned the following night and shone a powerful light. Meanwhile, Auckland residents night after night saw lights hovering over East Tamaki. One of these witnesses was a young engineer. He said it couldn't be a kite with a light attached to it because it moved far too fast. There were other reports from all over New Zealand. A press association report said lights had been seen over the Kakanui Ranges by large numbers of people. This article listed other places it had been seen before concluding, quote, Its reality cannot therefore be doubted. If this is the same mysterious something that has been seen in South Otago and Southland, the inventor has a machine that can not only take long flights, but that moves at a great rate of speed. The distance between the two points is about 200 miles. Skeptics said that what witnesses were reporting were simply fire balloons. These were easy to make and float up into the air, and people were getting all excited over nothing. But Truth Newspaper in Western Australia reckoned it wasn't fire balloons, but fire water that was the problem. These mysterious sightings would stop, the paper said, if only New Zealand restricted the sale of liquor. Clearly, Truth's journalists thought that Kiwi school kids were also hitting the bottle. By then, though, the scare ships had crossed the ditch and Australia's first sighting had happened. Oddly, given how much newspapers loved the airship stories from abroad, this mystery didn't make it past the Bansdale Advertiser on the 3rd of August 1909, at least that I've been able to find. A Mr Rigby of Bansdale told the paper that at 11pm on the 16th of July, he and his son had for a quarter of an hour observed a, quote, dark body travelling high up in the air, showing a headlight and a stern light. His son said the airship, or whatever it was, had been moving very fast. It was a week after that tiny story appeared in the Bansdale Advertiser that Reverend Benjamin Cousins saw his, quote, two beautiful revolving lights high up in the air. After the minister's Dandenong Rangers sighting made news in the Argus, Melbourne's The Herald interviewed the government astronomer. This scientific officer was an expert at fence-sitting, and he wouldn't offer any solid opinion without more information. But the Hamilton Spectator newspaper was way ahead of him, repeating Reverend Cousins' report under the headline, Was it an aerial fleet? If anyone thought that the minister had been guzzling the communion wine that Saturday night, a group of Malvern residents wrote to the Argus to confirm his story, saying, quote, On Friday and Saturday evening, we saw a strange light in the sky. At first they said they thought it was a star. But on both nights it rose in the direction of Mount Dandenong. Quote, Sometimes it burned red, then blue. It travelled towards the west. Another letter writer, however, told the Herald that what the Reverend had been seeing was nothing more than a lantern with three coloured slides that had been attached to the tail of a big kite. When it swung to and fro, it'd give the appearance of revolving beacons. This correspondent said that when he was a boy, he'd flown such lantern lights. Sydney's evening news was bemused and amused. Drunk Kiwis seeing airships was perhaps to be expected. Quote, 
But when our sane cold Melbourne sees lights, not stars, and has the sanction of the church, one feels it is time to make official inquiries. Yet the evening news wouldn't have to go south to check out the mysterious lights. That was because they were flying north to check out the Harbour City. On Sunday evening, the 8th of August, passengers on the express train from Melbourne to Sydney saw strange lights over the southern highlands of New South Wales. The next night, residents of Mossvale gathered in the main street of the town to watch the show. The Sydney Morning Herald reported, Above the large light, some large body was distinctly visible, as the rays of light were reflected upon its surface. The supposition generally held is that the mysterious floating body is either a large balloon or airship. This mysterious visitor was moving. You could track that by the progress of its light across the ground. People that night on the Melbourne to Sydney train, alert to what had happened the previous evening, crowded onto open platforms between carriages in the hope of getting a glimpse of this Southern Highlands phenomenon. They were rewarded with a large bright light floating a few miles away at an altitude of around 2,000 feet. Witnesses said it was clearly in motion and was not a star. Right at that moment, the Fremantle Evening Mail newspaper was being read on the West Coast. Its blunt headline about the mystery airships read, Latest Hallucinations. This article referred to the New Zealand sightings and to what Reverend Cousins had seen in the Dandenongs. Quote, The airship craze is clearly having a most undesirable effect upon many persons who are usually sane and level-headed. They are in a state of alarm and have joined the ranks of those who are seers of visions and dreamers of dreams. The new variety of scare has clearly perverted the mental vision and actual eyesight of persons in various places. While this paper also reckoned the Kiwis had been on the drink, it had to admit that a figure as respectable as Reverend Cousins had probably seen something. So it had to be the work of hoaxes. Thus, there was no need for alarm. Readers could, the Evening Mail reassured, quote, safely take their three meals a day and not sit up at night in fear of a belligerent fleet of airships swooping down upon them. But reports kept streaming in. Many of these sightings had supposedly occurred before the Dandenongs and Mossvale had made news. The sky over Goulburn had been ablaze with a mystery light for the past week. Half a dozen witnesses had seen it. Some said it was blue and very bright. Others said it was clearly being piloted by someone or something, not least for its ability to turn 90 degrees fast, stop rapidly and then reverse direction. One night the light seemed to be shedding stars and emitting rays. On another evening, a group of people watched the light from the back of the Oddfellows Hall. A plucky constable rode his bicycle straight for the light, and he made contact. Made contact, that is, with a lantern that someone had placed on a post beside a railway signal. The Narrabri correspondent for Sydney's Evening News sent a very detailed report about lights seen there starting on the Sunday night. Quote, About half past nine, a well-known resident of the town and a friend were out walking when their attention was suddenly attracted by a very bright light, like a 60-candle power gas jet, moving across the sky at a rapid rate. The light seemed to be about 1,500 feet high, and behind it there seemed to be a large white body like an airship or aeroplane. 
It was impossible for the light to have been controlled from the ground as it was too high and its movements too rapid. Obviously, it was controlled from close quarters. After circling over the back of the town, the light came straight in the direction of Dangar village, which lies out westerly. When above the centre of the town, it stopped and remained stationary fully 30 seconds and then slowly passed along in a southerly direction. As it travelled towards that point, a long arm of light shot straight ahead like a searchlight. Altogether, the light remained about 10 minutes and then disappeared. It was observed on Monday night and again on Tuesday night. People are mystified and many remain up all night with the hope of seeing the phenomenon. Then the lights were over Sydney. From Ashfield in the inner west came a report from a man who'd seen a strange yellow-orange glow about the size of a buggy lamp floating through the air. He'd watched it with binoculars from his veranda and the light had appeared to explode like a rocket and then vanish. A father and son were walking home at Guildford in Sydney's west when they watched two lights travelling through the sky. The son said that one light was bigger than the other. These two sought help from the Sydney Observatory. Its officer in charge, Mr W.E. Raymond, accompanied them the next night. Sure enough, they saw the lights, Jupiter and Venus. These planets were then approaching conjunction in the northwestern sky at night, Jupiter looking smaller than Venus on account of its distance from Earth. But astronomer Mr Raymond wasn't dismissing all reports of strange lights as planetary phenomena. He said there'd been too many sightings that didn't fit with Jupiter and Venus, or with Mars, which was then also visible in the night sky as a fiery red. What had been seen over Goulburn was of particular interest, Mr Raymond said. He believed the description of the light's altitude and its movement meant that people were not seeing planets. The astronomer intended getting down there to see for himself. At the moment, though, Mr Raymond's best guess was that local advertising firms had copied the English idea, or that the Australian Army was carrying out secret experiments with war kites. Yet the advertising explanation didn't make any more sense here than it had in England. As for the military explanation, an evening news journalist went to Victoria Barracks to ask the brass. He reported that officials there said the lights in Goulburn and Mossvale were, quote, in no way connected with military experiments. The brass claimed that no army kites had been flown in the southwest for a long time. George Taylor, secretary of the newly formed Aerial League, which had been established to promote Australian aerial navigation and innovation, weighed into the debate. Mr Taylor said that League members down in the Goulburn area had investigated the light and had concluded it was simply a lantern flown from a box kite. He said that anyone with a grain of sense realised it wasn't a celestial phenomenon and the impression of rapid aerobatics was simply caused by the lantern bobbing up and down and swinging side to side as it floated around. The Daily Telegraph was not convinced. Quote, This of course does not entirely explain the mystery. Unless several people have been simultaneously seized with the same idea, it does not account for the lights in this state being seen at distances of 300 or 400 miles apart. The article concluded, Perhaps the Martians are signalling. Who knows? Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. 
Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. While its newspapers had been quick to make mock, Western Australia saw the lights next. A witness in Pingeli, some 100 miles southeast of Perth, telegraphed the government astronomer to report that two lights a few feet apart had passed rapidly over the town, travelling in a southerly direction at 7.30pm. They'd been seen by a dozen people. About five hours later, in Victoria Park, just across the Swan River from the centre of Perth, a married couple and their child saw the same thing. They made a report to the central police station. A constable was sent out and two reporters chased the story. When they got to Victoria Park, they were met by another officer and a big crowd of residents armed with binoculars and telescopes. As the West Australian newspaper reported on the 14th of August, quote, They were all gazing at a little innocent star high up in the heavens and told the pressmen that it showed red and blue lights. The reporters found that by staring at that particular star with binoculars long enough, they could see it too. Then a new mystery light put in an appearance and caused much excitement. Yet, as it hung there in the sky, the more sensible members of the crowd had to concede it was actually Mars. The reporters gave fair play to the couple who'd made the initial report. They said the lights they'd seen were not what was then being observed. Quote, They assert they saw lights in the sky in the shape of a boat, some of them coloured, and that they moved rapidly across the sky. The West Australian concluded that no satisfactory explanation had been given for what witnesses had seen at Pingeli or at Victoria Park. Across the Tasman, the Kiwis were still seeing their airships. The Star in Sydney ran this little item on the 14th of August. Quote, the mystery in the air. The air continues to provide mysterious conquering vessels under such control as would make the Wright brothers gnash their teeth in envy. A Waipawa resident gives circumstantial but uncorroborated account of having seen an airship flying over Kaikoura. He says it was grey in colour, torpedo-shaped and contained three men, one of whom shouted at him in a foreign tongue. He watched the machine for some time. It appeared to be under perfect control and it carried two bright lights. Tasmania wasn't left out either. Lights were seen at Hobart on Thursday night swaying to and fro before disappearing in a northeasterly direction. They were seen at the same time in Launceston, where they presented the same way, but were said to make their exit to the southwest. The Zeon and Dundas Herald said witnesses at Ulverstone had on Friday night seen a strange body with two lights attached, travelling very fast at a high altitude. It had been visible for 15 minutes before disappearing to the west. Quote, those who saw the strange visitor were emphatic in the opinion that it was the latest invention in aerial navigation, an airship. As these sightings and a few others bounced around the telegraph cables, they generated a lot of headlines, ranging from the Queensland Times in Ipswich asking, what are they, planets or kites? To the Daily Post in Hobart summing up ongoing Western Australian sightings as incoherent tales. The Maclay Argus at Kempsey laughed that the reaction to the phenomena said much about modern society. Quote, 
Mysterious lights in the sky, such as meteors, falling stars, comets, used to fill good folk with terror, and the end of the world or the coming of a saviour was mostly feared. Now we think of airships, the gross materialisation of the age. A correspondent to the evening news in Sydney, who called himself FK, told readers that similar lights had been long known by bushmen and by Aborigines. He called it the travelling light and said it was a, quote, true mystery of the Australian bush. The writer said he'd seen the phenomenon, which he said was like seeing a lantern light a few miles off that receded or climbed into the air when you tried to approach. FK had spent an entire night chasing one, ruling out that it had been the moon or the stars. Though such lights had long been part of Aboriginal legend, it wouldn't be for another nine years they'd be dubbed the Min Min Lights, after a stockman reported them at that town in Queensland's Channel Country. In August 1909, Western Australia could lay claim to the most bizarre sighting of the scareship craze. A couple in Claremont supposedly saw a trio of men in an airship that was so low over their house the husband called out, Be careful of the chimneys. One of the aeronauts said something unintelligible before steering the craft away. Another witness wrote to his father from Ballingup to claim he'd been riding home around midnight when a bright light attached to something had descended right over him. Frightened, he rode back to where his friends were staying and they all watched the strange visitor for the next few hours. When lights were seen over the Western Australian goldfields, the Kalgoorlie Sun went all out with a headline stack that read Signalling from Mars. Strange lights at Kalgoorlie. A Friday AM episode. Was it a hostile airship or a message through space? The newspaper gave a straight report of a night watchman's account of flashing lights aloft. This witness, a sensible sort of chap, had never seen anything like it. He couldn't explain what it was, but he also poo-pooed the notion of airships. So did the newspaper. It said it was clearly Martians trying to get in contact with them because it was well recognised throughout the universe that the seat of all earthly intelligence was the offices of the Kalgoorlie Sun. The West Australian newspaper was a little more earnest in saying that the subject was worthy of further investigation. It reckoned the sightings were the work of local inventors who were keeping quiet about their experiments. But the paper said there were other possibilities too. The Netherlands government and the German colonial office were reportedly contemplating a joint exploration of New Guinea by airship. Maybe they were already there and doing runs over Australia by night. As a stab at Kaiseritis, this was pretty thin. The West Australian also floated the idea that all this news about airships was creating an atmosphere in which people were seeing Jupiter and Venus as more than just stationary planets. The hoax theory, it said, was also possible. Large fire balloons could easily be made in tethered pairs that would fit the description given by witnesses who said they'd seen two lights. The West Australian's article ended with this, quote, Whatever explanation may be offered, there can be no doubt that the minds of many in this state, in common with the rest of Australia, have been considerably exercised of late over the airship question. Australian people had been intrigued by the airship question, and then, all of a sudden, they weren't. As quickly as the scareship craze had come, it had gone and they were seen no more. On Saturday, the 25th of September, 1909, the Aurora Australis lit up much of the sky over New South Wales. 
Here's how the Sydney Morning Herald reported what it looked like from Batemans Bay. Quote, About 11 o'clock on Saturday night, the sky was illuminated with electric coloured lights flashing from east to west with great vividness, resembling searchlights, followed by a beautiful red sky in the southeast. The reflection on the river looked like a sea of blood. The whole thing lasted about two hours. Despite all the reports of just a month ago, the Aurora Australis didn't cause any resurgence of the scareship craze. What's odd is the whole thing was pretty much forgotten overnight. Nearly 40 years later, after flying saucers had made their debut, no one seemed to remember that something very similar had happened before powered flight reached Australia. So, what were Australians seeing in 1909? It's clear that some people were mistaking Venus, Jupiter and Mars for airships. Some sightings could also be discounted as fire balloons, and it's reasonable to assume a few hoaxes got in on the act as the craze spread. Advertising balloons seem highly unlikely, for the reasons already mentioned. Secret army experiments wouldn't account for sightings in such far-flung places. A few witnesses really did seem to be describing machines that had absolutely no business in Australian skies in 1909. The Narrabri correspondent for the evening news certainly sticks with me. Quote, When above the centre of the town, it stopped and remained stationary, fully 30 seconds, and then slowly passed along in a southerly direction. As it travelled towards that point, a long arm of light shot straight ahead like a searchlight. Yet we have to remember this is from an unnamed journalist paraphrasing an unidentified witness. For all we know, they were having a bit of fun pulling the legs of the city folk. Even eyewitnesses acting in good faith might have been seeing things as a result of suggestion they didn't even realise they were susceptible to. What was this suggestion? As I said at the start of this episode, the scareship craze has to be understood in the context of what else was going on in 1909. This was a time when science fiction was rapidly blurring into science fact. In 1900, the world's first rigid dirigible had been flown by Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin. Three years later, the Wright brothers conquered powered flight. The sky was suddenly no longer the limit. Australian newspapers in 1909 frequently ran big feature articles about airship technology and what it meant for the future. The question of aerial warfare was also a hot topic. Here are some headlines. War in the air. Airship fleets for defence. An all-Russian effort. Some new books. The use of airships in war. When airships make war. Germany's air fleet. Ships building rapidly. The airships of the frontier. Defence against airships. Training special companies. How to defend Australia. Are battleships doomed? Airships in warfare. Count Zeppelin's voyages, uneasiness in Europe, British inactivity. Mistress of the air, Germany's place in aviation. Those 10 headlines come from just Sydney's Daily Telegraph in just the first six months of 1909. There were hundreds more such pieces all over Australia in the same period. Meanwhile, H.G. Wells had just published his novel called The War in the Air. The book was set in the near future and described massive German fleets of airships up to 2,000 feet long, pulverising New York City in a sneak bombing attack. 
The premise of H.G. Wells' story was that after the Wright brothers' first powered flight in 1903, the world's military powers had embarked on a secret arms race to conquer the air. But the thing was, such programs weren't that secret. The power of Zeppelins was being demonstrated over Europe. In July 1909, the Australian press nervously reported the German government was spending £130,000 annually on aerial navigation. This was compared with the piddling 5,000 quid being spent by the British. Australia wasn't doing nearly enough to reach for the sky. At least, that's what Tasmanian Federal Senator John Clemens claimed this same month. He reckoned the Australian government wasn't alert to the possibilities, and what he wanted to see was £50,000 spent on aerial experiments. When he said this in Parliament, he was told that airships were too expensive. The senator shot back, saying they were far cheaper than building naval warships. The federal government wasn't going to spend £50,000, but it would spend 5000 On the 23rd of July 1909, the Minister for Defence, Joseph Cook, announced a competition for, quote, the invention of an airship suitable for war purposes. The prize? £10,000. £5,000 would come from the government, and the other £5,000 in matching funds was going to be pledged by private interests. This competition had been suggested by George Taylor, Secretary of the Aerial League. He'd written a memo to Mr Cook saying, quote, The fact that aeroplanes can be carried on board ships and let loose like falcons upon a hostile coast is a phase that Australia should be keeping alive to. Great things are predicted for the airship. In war, it is even being considered that it sooner or later will make scrap iron out of the battleship. The rules for the airship competition were that it had to be able to ascend quickly, had to be able to stop and then to descend. The airship had to be capable of 25 miles per hour under power and be able to carry a pilot and an observer for five hours. With £10,000 up for grabs, simply adjusted for inflation, that's $1.5 million today, inventors flooded Joseph Cook with letters, plans, rough drawings and descriptions of their flying contraptions. A Melbourne clockmaker sent in a design that looked like a giant timepiece set in a bamboo frame. A French inventor had read about the competition in a Paris newspaper and claimed he could deliver a fleet of airships that ran on electricity. A farmer from northern New South Wales said his design required no fuel and cost not a penny to run. As a 1982 article in the Canberra Times about the competition noted, most entrants writing to Mr Cook asked for money to develop their idea or asked that they be allowed access to the Department of Defence to work on their plans in secret. But that wasn't how the competition worked and these requests were denied. And that was the catch-22. Inventors couldn't get money and support to test and develop their designs, yet they couldn't test and develop their designs without money and support. Nevertheless, Mr Cook was buoyant about the competition in September 1909, telling Melbourne's Herald, quote, The place is littered with airship suggestions. Referring to the spate of recent sightings, the Minister of Defence said if they were real, then this inventor was yet to make himself and his airship known to the government. By the following year, the airship competition had crashed to earth. None of the designs submitted were taken up by the government and the government was let off the hook when the £5,000 in matching funds from private interests didn't materialise. But the point, for our purposes, is that the airship competition was a source of excitement at a very specific time, 
that is, late July and through August into September of 1909. A lack of funds might have prevented many inventors from building and testing complex airships, but it's very likely that amateur aeronauts were putting simpler designs through their paces. With a fortune at stake, it'd make sense to keep your genius secret, which might explain why mystery airships were being seen at night, and being seen all over Australia in places where the army couldn't have been testing kites. What I find really mysterious is that although the scareship craze and the airship competition happened at exactly the same time, I haven't found any newspaper reports suggesting that the former may have been related to the latter. It had seemed the most obvious conclusion when faced with credible witnesses describing aerial phenomena that didn't fit with planetary lights, lantern kites, fire balloons or army tests. Maybe newspaper editors and reporters simply wanted to believe. In December 1909, George Taylor, the Aerial League Secretary, became the first person to make a heavier-than-air flight in Australia when he took a glider up over Narrabeen on Sydney's northern beaches. Four months later, Harry Houdini made the first powered flight in Australia at Digger's Rest outside of Melbourne. From then on, when Australians saw a strange light in the night sky, they could reasonably assume it was a daring local aviator rather than an invading German or a man from Mars. Yet there would be one more airship seen in Australia before the end of 1909. This was British film The Airship Destroyer, about a fleet of enemy airships over England. In the movie, the main Zeppelin's suspended platform is manned by three men in black. It's a silent film, so we don't hear what they say. But it's safe to assume, if we could... They would be, as that Welsh witness said, jabbering at each other furiously in a foreign language. This trio of villains rain bombs down mercilessly, blowing up an armoured car and a signalling station before incinerating an entire town. To defend themselves, the British send up a box kite plane with a mounted machine gun. But it's no match for the Zeppelin and it's shot down and crashes. So England's only hope lies with a heroic and romantic inventor. Can he launch his surface-to-air missile in time to save the day and get the girl? If you want to find out what happens in this very early example of science fiction, you can watch the Airship Destroyer on YouTube. It's less than seven minutes long and a real curiosity in terms of what it reveals about what Australians thought they might be seeing in the skies and what the world was fearing at this time. And those fears would soon be realised. Within weeks of the First World War starting, German Zeppelins were bombing Liege, Antwerp and Paris. On the 19th of January 1915, the Kaiser's airships attacked the British seaside towns of Kings Lynn and Great Yarmouth. Then, on the night of the 31st of May 1915, the war came to London, when a 650-foot-long Zeppelin dropped 120 bombs and grenades on the city. While Australia was physically safe from such attack, Australians in London were caught up in this proto-blitz. Back in 1909, our newspapers had published letters from expats about the phantom scareships. Now, they were real. On the 5th of December 1915, Sydney's The Sun printed a letter from an Australian woman in London. Quote, They came last night. Two of them. It was just awful. About 8.30pm, two Zeppelins came in sight, high up over the village. They looked like two long, illuminated cigars and were travelling fast. 
As they neared London, we saw the red and green flares that they dropped to light up all the surroundings so as to see where their bombs are likely to do most damage. It is no use darkening London, for these gas bags make their own light, and by the way they make direct for the heart of the city, prove that their steersmen know more of the geography of London than does the average Londoner. All the time, they were dropping bombs. We could see the shells bursting just beneath them from our anti-aircraft guns. The aim was too short, though they say one was hit, but the Zeppelins are built in so many compartments that it takes a good many wounds to bring them down. The casualty list is 56 killed, including 15 soldiers and 114 injured. Raids like this on London would kill some 700 people and leave close to 2,000 seriously injured. Though these airship attacks were militarily insignificant and most Zeppelins were shot down or badly damaged, the world had entered the age of aerial bombardment of cities, of shock and awe being used against civilian populations. Scare ships were no longer fiction or figments of the imagination. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. I'll be back soon with a new episode, so make sure you're subscribed to get the next show the moment it's released. In the meantime, if you'd like to help me keep making Forgotten Australia, you can become a supporter for a few bucks a month. As a supporter, you'll get ad-free episodes and you'll also get a shout-out in the show. So cheers to Anthony Edwards, Gail Fisher, Grant Borlase, Dicko, Nathan Richards, Sue Harley, Dimmy, Chris Andrews, Lachlan Curry, David Holland, Dale Spurway-Humphreys, Barbara Mortimer, Fran Mulligan, Janine Roberts, Judith Ricard-Bell, Shannon Colgan, Mark O'Reilly, Francis Bryant, Denise Thornton, Paul Vernon, Kate Leader, Alastair McInnes, Darren Gore, Patrick O'Brien, Alexander Colley, Louise Bugden, Karen Sido, Paul Sayer, Athena Graydon and Nira Lee. By becoming a supporter, you'll also get immediate access to exclusive full-length bonus episodes. These include the three-part story of a 1927 Blue Mountains murder mystery, a two-part look at a sensational 1940 divorce case that ruined the career of a top murder cop, and the deeply weird account of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's 1920 spiritualist tour of Australia. Supporters can also get access to the full-length audiobook Australia's Sweetheart, my biography of our forgotten movie star Mary Maguire, which I'm reading and uploading every month. For more information, go to patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia, and this link is also in your show notes. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening and thanks for supporting. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.